This evening in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Specifically, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. And it says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's open with a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, this evening we bow our heads and we do confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess even as we have just sung joy to the world, the Lord is come. Father, what comfort there is for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What hope there is for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And even this evening as we look at this passage, as we see the heart of Christ for sinners, as we see the lengths to which God went to save us, may we be encouraged. May we be challenged. Pray that we would not walk away from here the same way as we came. Pray that you would work in each and every one of us through your word for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? This is one of those times where you can raise your hand. How many of you have either read the book or seen the movie? It's a well-known book. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is by C.S. Lewis, and it was first published in 1950. It's gone on to become, to, to become regarded as one of the best young adult books of all time. The story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe centers on a parallel world known as Narnia. As many of you know, Narnia is populated with humans and talking animals and other mythical creatures. In the midst of this book, what happens is that four siblings stumble upon Narnia accidentally through a wardrobe. They're hiding in a wardrobe, uh, and they find this magical place. Once they get to Narnia, they meet many different creatures. But eventually, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, it becomes clear that they are the fulfillment of a long-standing prophecy in Narnia. 
They meet talking beavers and other fantastical creatures, but perhaps the greatest being that they meet is Aslan. If you know the story, you know that Aslan is a powerful lion. And yet he is gentle at the same time. It becomes clear throughout the course of the book, and don't worry, I'm not going to give away the whole thing if someone hasn't read it yet. It becomes clear throughout the course of the book that this land, Narnia, has fallen under the curse of the white witch. And through the course of the book, one of the siblings, Edmund, sneaks off and comes into contact with the white witch. In fact, not only does he meet the white witch, but he becomes a traitor. See, the white witch doesn't want this prophecy to be fulfilled. She wants to kill these siblings. And so Edmund sells his brothers and sisters, Peter, Susan, and Lucy. He tells the white witch where they are so that she can go and get them just for some little thing in return. Eventually, as Edmund gets to know the white witch, as he comes to understand who she is and what it is that he has done, he wants to get out of this. He wants to get away from her. But there's a problem. You see, in Narnia, there's a long-held law The traitors, one who commits treason, must be killed. So the white witch holds this over Edmund and comes to Aslan and says, you want him back, he wants to come back, but he must be killed. You know the law of the land. Aslan steps into a secret meeting with the white witch, and Aslan comes out and Edmund goes free, because Aslan has agreed to give himself in place of Edmund. The next scene is a heartbreaking scene. It's heartbreaking as the mighty and yet gentle and kind Aslan walks to his death. I think the movie, it's the the, the movie that came out just a few years ago, does a good job of portraying this scene. As you see, this powerful lion walking amidst the crowd of all these minions of the White Witch. He could clearly have his way with them. But he submits. And he walks to his death as the white witch's minions mock and torment him incessantly. They spit on him. They hit him. In the ultimate act of shame, they shave his mane. And so thus Aslan, naked and humbled, powerful, and yet he powerfully powerlessly lays down willingly and dies. I'm not going to give the rest of the story away. But when Lewis set out to write The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he said that his goal is to explore what the gospel might look like in another world. What if there were another world out there? How would God interact with that world? What would it look like? If nothing else, I think that it, it comes across as a, as a good allegory for the gospel in our world. And I think the emotion, the picture of Aslan humbling himself for Edmund is a beautifully powerful picture of what we will look at this evening here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. 
We're in the midst of a short three-part Christmas series we started this morning called The Triune God of Christmas. We're exploring each member of the Trinity and their role in the Christmas story. This morning we spent our time looking at John 3.16. We explored God the Father who actively, willingly gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Father gave. This evening, I invite you to join me here in Philippians 2 as we look at the Son, the Son of God who came. Before we get to Philippians 2, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of what we saw this morning. Not just God the Father's role in the incarnation and sending the Son, but the reason behind it. What was the reason for the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Why did God become flesh? And this morning we saw that the purpose behind the incarnation is the salvation of sinners. God gave because of love to save us from death and to give us eternal life. This evening we'll turn our attention from the God who gave to Jesus, the Son of God, who was given and who willingly came to save sinners. In Philippians 2, we will see Jesus' right, Jesus' resolve, and Jesus' reward. The first thing we see is Jesus' right. We see that in the first two verses. Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Philippians 2 is a well-known passage. It's probably a passage you've read many times. A passage that you're very familiar with. But this passage comes in the form of a charge. Let this mind be in you. It comes in the form of a charge, a call to take action. And Philippians 2.5 reminds us that the doctrinal truth of Philippians 2.6-11 comes in the context written of a, of a letter written with a particular purpose to a particular church. There's a reason why Paul puts this here. It's not just so we will know what happened. He's proving a point. He's making a point. Specifically, the context of what Paul is saying here looks all the way back to Philippians 1.27. Paul begins this section calling the Philippians to let this manner of life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul corporately calls them to unity and supported here. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5, by his charge for individual humility. Submit to one another. Be unified. And how does that work? How are we as a church unified? When you and I are humble. What does humility look like? That's Paul's goal, and it's with this goal in mind that Paul puts forth the example of Jesus Christ and his extreme humility in the Incarnation. In order to, in order to effectively make his case, Paul begins with Jesus' right. 
Before the incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God. Let this mind be in you, this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Have that same mind. See that mind here and embrace it. What is this mind? Well, it's Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God. Jesus Christ who was in the form of God. The word form in this passage is not meant to be contrasted with reality. It's not in the form of as opposed to, but in reality. Rather, it's meant to relay reality. In fact, the NIV very helpfully translates this phrase, in very nature. In eternity past, Jesus is in the form of God because Jesus is God. This verse makes it clear that Jesus existed before the incarnation. He has always been. He has always been in very nature God himself. John 1.1 puts the same truth in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All the way back to the beginning, He was there. Not only was He there with God, He was God. A few verses later, John makes sure to identify the Word for us, and he clearly states that the Word is Jesus Christ when he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word who became flesh is the same word that was in the beginning with God. It's the same word that was God. Jesus was in the form of God. He was in very nature God. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to clarify that because Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Who, Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word translated robbery there can sometimes slip us up. It's, it's, it's an odd word. It's an odd phrase in English for us to understand. But the word robbery in Philippians 2.6 means to violently grasp or to desperately cling to. Jesus could have clung to his rights and his privileges as one who is in the very nature of God himself. He could have clung to that right. But instead, as the Holcomb Christian Standard Bible translates this word, he did not view his rights as something to be used for his own advantage. He had a right. He was God. He was in the very nature of God. It is his right, therefore, to be equal with God. He is equal with God if he's in the nature of God. But he didn't view his right as something to be used for his own advantage. The heart of Christ, as revealed here in Philippians 2, 6, is a stark contrast to Lucifer. 
Passages like Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, Ezekiel 28, 12 to 15, imply that it was pride and a burning desire to be equal with God that led to Lucifer's fall. He desired that. He longed for it. He grasped violently for it. But Jesus, who being in the form of God, was equal with God, he did not consider it as something to be grasped. Ironically, what we see here is that Jesus' willingness to give up his right to be equal with God rather than to cling to it violently actually reveals his equality with God. It reveals the very heart of God himself. Jesus' action shows who he really is. We see here in these first two verses that Jesus who in eternity past was equal with God, gave up his equality with God in order to save sinners. He was willing to set that aside to save sinners. He was willing to set aside his rights for you and for me. Jesus gave what was rightfully his to take what is rightfully ours. As we saw this morning, death, perishing, that is what is rightfully ours. And Jesus was willing to give up what is rightfully his to take what is rightfully ours. This Jesus took your sin and your death in order to offer you the gift of God, eternal life. This is not all that Jesus gave. Philippians 2, 7-8 goes on to explain the extreme humility of Christ as seen in the Incarnation. We see Jesus' resolve to accomplish this. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, something to, to cling, to grasp, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus gave all the glory of heaven for all the shame of a servant. From the one worshipped by all creation to the one with no rights or reputation among his creation. He didn't come as a king or a prince. He didn't come as a mighty warrior or a wealthy merchant. He came as a servant. The lowest of the low. He was born in a manger. Something that is meant to feed animals. One who was in the form of God came in the form of the lowliest of servants. He made himself of no reputation. If you have an ESV, it might say, he emptied himself. Reality, that is the truest sense of the Greek word. But it's important to be clear here that Jesus did not cease to be God at the Incarnation. He did not cease to be God. 
In fact, Jesus is no less God in the Incarnation than he was before the Incarnation. Jesus gave up equality with God and emptied himself not by losing anything, but by gaining something. What we find here in Philippians 2 is subtraction by addition. Paul's point is not that Jesus traded divinity for humanity, but that Jesus added humanity to divinity. It's not that he is less God. Because if he were less God, then we could not say he was Emmanuel, God with us. Because if he is less God, then he's not God. But he is Emmanuel with us. The fullness of God, veiled in human form. He is fully God. But he adds fully man to that. The fullness of God, veiled in humble human form. It's a silly but, but simple illustration. At least it made sense to me this week as I was thinking through this. It seemed helpful to me. Hopefully it's helpful to you. If it's confusing, just forget I'm saying this. There's an old movie called The Shaggy Dog. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but the premise of the movie is that a, a, a man or a boy, depending on which one you've seen, falls under a curse and is periodically changed into a dog. But the point that, that, that struck me is that when he is in the form of this dog, it's not that he has ceased to be himself. He doesn't change at all. He still thinks the same. He still acts, his inner dialogue still sounds like the man or the boy outside of the dog. But being in the form of a dog, he is limited. He's still fully himself, but he can't speak. Now he barks. And it's frustrating. He's not less than himself when he's in the form of a dog, but he's limited by his dogness to barking instead of to speaking. In the incarnation, Jesus does not cease to be God. He becomes man. As John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh. The Word. The Word that was in the beginning became flesh. All of the Word became flesh. The same word, the exact same word that was in the beginning in John 1.1 1, 1, becomes flesh in John 1.14. It's not less of the word. All of the word that becomes flesh. And I want to point to a little phrase here at the beginning of verse 7. Notice it says, but made himself of no reputation. Notice it doesn't say, but was made of no reputation. He made himself. This morning we saw God the Father's role in the Incarnation as God the Father who gave. We looked at the cost of that giving. But as God gave, Christ didn't come against His will. He came willingly. In fact, He came so willingly that He made Himself of no reputation. submitted to the Father's will and He came willingly and He chose this for you and for me. But the humility of Christ does not stop at being made a servant. But as Philippians 2.8 points out, it leads all the way to the cross. 
The one who humbled himself to earth humbles himself to death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross is one of the worst ways to die in the Roman world. If you've grown up in church or been going to church for many years, you've probably heard uh, some pastors take the time to, to walk you through everything that goes on in the crucifixion, how brutal that it was. It was not a humane or a quick way to die. It was slow. It was painful. It was humiliating. And think about where we are right now in this passage. Think where we started just two verses ago. An eternity past with God who was in the very form of God and had every right to be equal with God. And yet look at where we are two verses later. That same word becomes flesh. Takes on the form of a servant. Becomes obedient to death. Even death on a cross. The most humiliating death known to man at that time. Look at this change in two verses. The one who in eternity passed enjoyed the rights of equality with God, now on a cross facing a slow, painful, humiliating death, enduring the taunts and mockery of men he loves and knows. Men that he is dying for. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ. But why is it such great news that Jesus is born? We celebrate Christ's birth because it is necessary for Christ's death. If he never takes on flesh, he cannot die for you and he cannot die for me. He cannot rise again victorious. He cannot ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of his Father. The manger leads directly to the cross. The baby who cries in the manger will one day cry out in pain. The baby who on the night of his birth was covered in his mother's blood will one day shed his own blood. The baby whose skin is soft will one day have that skin torn from his body. His head will be pierced with thorns. His hands and his feet will be pierced with nails and he will die. Because the God who humbled himself to be born in a manger will humble himself to death, even death on a cross for you and for me. And this is Jesus' role in the incarnation. The Father gave and the Son came willingly for you and for me. And praise the Lord that death on the cross is not the end. As we see in verses 9 to 11. The one who is so humbled will be exalted. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. 
That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, notice what verse 9 begins with. It begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, God is highly exalted. It is precisely because Jesus humbled himself that the Father exalts him. Christ is restored to his rightful position. Jesus, who was humbled to the lowest of the lows, is raised to life, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of God. He is restored. He remains the God-man, but his divinity that was veiled by humanity on earth is no longer veiled in heaven. He's not lifted to a position higher than what he already had. For if he was already equal with God, he could not be more equal with God. But he does have new responsibilities. The major change comes not in his relation to God, but in his relation to man and to creation. He is the God-man. And so now Christ stands not just as the eternal Son of God, but as our perfect High Priest. He pleads for us before the throne of grace. And he stands both as our creator, both as the creator of the world and as the redeemer of the world. If he were not God incarnate, he could not stand as our perfect high priest. The very heart of the gospel is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the God-man. Without the Word becoming flesh, there is no good news. Therefore, as mentioned earlier, it is precisely because Jesus humbled himself that the Father exalts him in this unique role. He is the only one who can fill this role. And finally, notice the tie to our message this morning. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's not what it says. It says, to the glory of God the Father. Again, it points to the fact that Jesus did not act alone in the incarnation. God the Father sent him. If the Father were not involved in the Incarnation, then the, God, then the Father would not get any glory through the Incarnation. What Jesus does, He does in submission and obedience to the Father, and He does it willingly for the Father. As the Son who was given is exalted high above heaven and earth, it is the Father who sent Him, who is glorified. Jesus gave up his right, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and then rose victorious, has been exalted above the heavens for you and for me, for the world. So this Christmas, don't be distracted by the pretty lights and the peaceful manger scenes. Remember the purpose and the cost of your salvation. Remember what God has done, what began in a manger on that night. Rejoice in the love of God to send His only begotten Son 
and rejoice in the love of the Son to come. See the depth of God's love for you and find comfort. Find hope this evening. See your perfect high priest and run to him with the burdens and the cares of your heart. It's because of the incarnation that he is your perfect high priest. He knows the troubles of your hearts. He's faced which you faced. He knows temptation more than you will ever know. And he has been exalted. That's good news. That's good news for you and I. It ties back to the Great Commission, does it not? Where Jesus gives us the commission as the church, go and reach the world. And why does he say that? Because all authority has been given to me. It's because he came, because he died, because he rose, because he ascended, because he was seated at the right, seated at the right hand of God. All authority has been given to him. He is our perfect high priest. He has conquered the grave. And he has been exalted above the heavens. And as he says at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always. Our perfect high priest has authority. He has power to act on our behalf. Find comfort in that this evening. Paul's purpose in writing this passage, as we saw at the beginning here in Philippians, is specifically to call the Philippians believers to unity. To encourage them to be humble by showing them the extreme humility of Christ for them. And yet we see at the same time that the one who was humbled was ultimately exalted. So by way of application, first, be humble. That's Paul's point here. That's what he's getting at. Look at the extreme humility of Christ. See what he has done for you. And you, heed the call to be humble. If we are going to be unified, we must each be humble. We must be willing to humble ourselves below our rights for the cause of the gospel. So be humble. But secondly, be encouraged. Be encouraged as you look at what the Son of God has done for you. Stand in awe of the great cost of your salvation. And the one who is willing to get it. And if you're here this evening and you've never placed your faith in Christ, or maybe you just have some questions, maybe you're just not sure, see what Christ has done for you this evening in this passage and be encouraged to come forward. Be encouraged to come and to ask those questions and to find answers in the Word of God. And even as we close with a closing song, I would encourage you, even as we are singing that, come forward. And I would love nothing more than to take you aside and to point you to the Word of God and to point you to Christ and to answer any questions that you may have. But for those of us who are in Christ, this evening, be challenged to be humble and be encouraged.
by the great love of your Savior. We're going to close by singing the song, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come.